if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. And no, I, it's funny, I, I don't remember much about yesterday, much less a year ago, whether or not I was up here or not. Uh, but uh, it is good to be back. It is good to be back. And uh, we have today in our passage, uh, which is unusual of late, a shorter passage. I feel like typically we've been doing about 10 to 15 verses at a time, uh, a lot of narrative. But we have just four short verses today, but four very deeply important, very deeply important and impactful verses. At least they should be. At least they should be. And these are... These are four verses that, in, especially within the, in, in, in this type of group, where the vast majority of us has heard and understand the story of the gospel, probably since we were little kids, maybe most of us, it's very easy to just come to a text like this and just kind of breeze over it. Not let it have much impact, not really think about it, not stew in it for a minute, but just kind of breeze over it. And if we do that, obviously it won't have the weight that God wants it to have on your heart. So I would encourage us today to not just come and just let this text just kind of breeze, like breeze right through it, but allow it to do the weighty work that God wants it to do in bearing fruit in you. Because if if we receive if we receive this text, it will bear fruit. And if it's the first time you've heard a text like this and it's received, it, it could change your life, your entire life. So let's pray this morning that God would just be very gracious to us. It is an act of grace to, to open our eyes, to open our ears, to hear the word of God and let it bear fruit in us. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come to your word this morning. Hopefully, Lord, as a, as a body, just completely empty-handed with little preconceived notions, just ready to receive, ready to hear, ready to understand. I pray, God, that you would reveal something about your heart the intentions of your heart, the intentionality of your heart, the missional mind of your, of the missional mind that you have and the missional heart that you have. And I pray, God, that as your disciples, as your disciples, God, we would adopt your heart in exchange for our, our own. Make that exchange in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You should be uh, there by now. Luke 18, verse 31. It says, Then he took the twelve aside, and he said to them, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem. All things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked. He will be mistreated. He will be spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. 
But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. This is what God has for us this morning. May we have ears to hear it. And so before I get into this text, I think it's a good idea to review a bit. And I say that because Jesus doesn't just throw this out there uh, in a vacuum. He's not just saying this randomly, but he actually has intention and purpose uh, for saying what he's about to go through. In other words, there's context to it. And the context is actually given to us earlier in this chapter. It's it's actually uh, sandwiched in, in a ton of messages within this chapter that Luke is writing for us. So you look back all the way to the beginning of chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. If you remember, Jesus is giving a parable, and it's a parable about prayer. And he makes a connection between prayer and faith. He makes a connection between prayer and faith, meaning that faithful people, faithful people who trust God are prayerful people, especially in times of suffering, especially in times of unjust situations. Faithful people or people of true faith trust God in it, in the suffering, in the pain, in the unjust situation. They trust God in it all as the one who will bring justice. He's a God of justice. And that faith is evidence, it says in the, in the passage, as, as, as a crying out, as a pleading and praying. And so what's the lesson? The lesson is dependence on God brings about ju- or dependence on God to bring about justice. It's about dependence, meaning faith looks like absolute, utter dependency on Him. So we move on to verse nine through seventeen to another parable. This time it's a parable about two very distinctly different people, two very different people. One who is self righteous and self dependent, trusting in self. And the other who is broken. This, this other man is broken. He's contrite in heart. He knows his sin. He knows the weight of his sin. And he knows what his sin means before a holy God. And one offers up prayers of self-exaltation. And the other prays for mercy. One walked away justified, which means righteous or declared not guilty, and the other one did not. And it was the one who was dependent on God's mercy. So again, the lesson is dependence. The lesson is yet again dependence versus independence. Prayer, again, for God to move, for, be, for God to be the one who moves and for him to be the one who shows mercy. It's all about being dependent which is funny given the fact that this is the weekend of independence. But God is all about dependence. Are we seeing a theme yet? Are we seeing a theme yet? We've we're still got more to go in, in chapter 18. Next in verse 14, we see children and we see their dependency being exemplified. We see the dependency of a child being exemplified by our Savior, meaning that salvation or the kingdom will only be will only be for those who are absolutely needy, not self-sufficient. These infants, they brought nothing to the table. I'm I'm a new dad again. I have have a three-week 
almost three-week-old baby at home. She can do nothing except cry and mess her diaper. She's absolutely dependent on pretty much Ashley <laughs> to do everything for her. And that's, that's what Jesus is exemplifying here, this absolute neediness of the child, offering nothing, merely receiving, merely receiving the kingdom, merely receiving God's mercy. And then in verse 18, we see Jesus make an example. Now we have a true story. We're out of parables, we're into a true story, and Jesus makes an example out of a rich ruler, a man who is full of self-sufficiency. A self-made man who thought he was good. He was deluded and thought that he was good. On par with Jesus. Calls him good. We're good. He thinks he's good. And he thinks he's good because he does so well. At least he thinks he does so well at fulfilling the love thy neighbor aspect of the commandments. He thinks he's done all these things since his youth. And Jesus says there's still one thing you lack though. That was love God. You missed, you missed love God. It, it has always been the first and greatest commandment was love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. No one has ever loved neighbor truly unless they have loved God first. No one has ever loved neighbor in the way that they're supposed to love their neighbor unless it was out of a love for God, unless it was out of an overflow of love for God onto your neighbor. So he actually didn't love his neighbor. In fact, Jesus is so clear that it has to be a love for God that is greater than this world. It's a love for God that is greater than this world, greater than love of family, greater than love of money, greater than love of comfort, greater than love of self. It is to be the greatest love in your heart. And so Jesus teaches them and us that saving faith is denial. It is denial of any self-sufficiency on your own and trusting, like truly just resting and trusting fully in him. Which I would argue to trust God is to love God. To trust God is to love him for who he is and what he has done. Saving faith is loving God, a.k.a. trusting God with a whole heart, trusting fully in Him for salvation. And so that begs the question, who? Who can see God in such a way that you love Him like that? More than anything. More than anyone. More than yourself. Who, who can see Jesus in such a way that you love him so much that it looks like hate for your family? No one has ever loved God like that. Not on their own. No one has ever loved God on their own. Each and every person, in fact, has done nothing but hate God and exalt self. All the days of their life. Even your best deeds, even your most good and uplifting words you might give a friend, the most righteous act you might do for your friend, if it's not done out of love for God and by faith, it is only for self-exaltation and therefore it is like hatred towards God. 
done nothing but that our entire lives. So the verse 26 in chapter 18, verse 26, the question is asked, if someone as blessed as this man can't be saved, who can be saved? It's a good question. Because it is impossible. It's impossible. And yet, what is possible with man, Jesus says, is totally possible with God. It's totally possible with God. And this is, brings me to our main point this morning. The main point is this, is that the impossible, the impossible is made possible through the promised lamb. The impossible is made possible through the promised lamb. Jesus, when we get to our text today, Jesus is not just throwing this prophecy in here just to startle or wow or kind of confuse his disciples. And it is, it is what it is. It is a prophecy. That's exactly what it is. Jesus is foretelling his death and his resurrection, and he gets it down to the T. He nails it. But he doesn't just say this just to confuse his disciples, but rather he wants to remind them. And, and it should be a reminder, because he's, he's appealing to the prophets that they knew well. He's appealing to the scriptures that they should have known very well. And so he wants to remind them of the way the way by which God will make the impossible possible. What Jesus reveals to us today is, is the only way. It's the only way for man to be saved. It's the only way for anyone to even have the possibility of receiving mercy. The mercy that's offered to us is not even receivable apart from this. The eyes to see God as he is remain shut apart from this. The heart that loves God like we should remains hard, cold, and dead apart from this. Entrance into the kingdom, there is no kingdom apart from this. The only way any of this could happen the only way that any of this could happen, the impossible possible, is if God's justice, if God's justice was satisfied. God demands death for sin. He demands it. His just nature and character and holiness and righteousness demands that there be death for sin that there be justice for sin, which is a high treason against the holy and righteous king of the entire universe, the one who made it all. To sin against him is high treason and at best a complete indifference towards him. And he, for that, he demands justice. Exodus 37.4 says, I will by no means clear the guilty. He's a just God. He's a righteous judge. And to sweep our sin under the rug would be completely against his nature, his character, and completely unjust. He won't do it. He won't do it. So verse 31, Jesus takes his disciples aside. 
He kind of has a little huddle with his disciples, and he, he wants them to know, he wants to remind them that this is the way, okay? This is the way God is going to save his elect. The punishment that is due to you, the punishment that is due to you, he says, I will take on myself. I will suffer. I will suffer in so many ways, and I will receive God's just and holy and righteous and massive and infinite wrath on myself so that you can receive mercy. He did it. He did it for us. But this was the only way it could happen. Which brings me to my first point. There was never going to be a kingdom without a cross. This proclamation of the kingdom that Jesus has been proclaiming since his ministry began, he never intended for anyone to be able to receive it apart from this. There was never to be a kingdom without a cross. In fact, this was the plan all along. His death was the plan from all along. His death was no accident. It was not the result of a good teacher who said a, a few bad things, made a, made a few kind of mistakes in his culture, and it got him killed. That's not what happened. No, this, this was the promise all along. This was the reason, like the reason for which Jesus even came. Let's look at it again. Verse 31, he says, Then he took the twelve aside, and he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written about through the prophets, through the prophets about the Son of Man, says they will be accomplished. Such confidence. Such sovereignty to be able to make that statement. Jesus is again pulling his disciples aside here. And this is, this is like a moment for them. This is a moment for them. He wants them to see and hear this specifically, and yet they have no idea what he meant by it. They have no idea what he meant. In fact, this is the third time that Luke tells us that Jesus is very specific about his death and his resurrection. That's to come. This is the third time that he has prophesied and predicted this, and each time it is completely over their heads. In one ear, out the other. It's completely lost on them. So you might be thinking, like, why... Like, why even tell them? He knows they're not going to get it. They're going to change the subject. Or, or Peter's going to say, you know, don't do it. And he's going to have to tell them, get behind me, Satan. Like, they're always just either not getting it or arguing with him about this. So why, why bring it up again? It says in verse 34, in fact, in this text, that it was hidden from them. By who? Or by what? I would argue it was hidden by their own desires. It was hidden by their own desires, by their own preconceived notions, their own presuppositions of who the Messiah was, how he would come, how he would establish his kingdom, or how he would bring about the kingdom. They had these preconceived notions, they had these presuppositions, and really they had no room in their eschatology at all for a suffering Messiah. They had no room in their kingdom theology for a king who would give his life for his people. They had no clue and no concept of a suffering king. And yet Jesus is telling them, again, there is no kingdom 
There is no kingdom without a cross. There is no kingdom without my death. There is no kingdom without atonement. They should have gotten it. Jesus tells them this not because he expects them to get it. He wants them to remember. He wants them to remember and he wants them to see so that when it happens, just as he said it would happen, when all of this goes down, when he's, when he's delivered over, when he's beaten, when he's mocked, when he's spit on, when his beard is plucked out, when he rises again, when it all happens, they will, the light will turn on and they'll say, he said it would happen. This is for them future. That they would see that this was not a mistake. This was not by accident, but it was really according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. We see later that they get it. We get it because Peter preaches just that. In Acts 2, post-resurrection, post-ascension, at Pentecost, Peter preaches that Jesus' death was planned long ago. He says, you killed him, but it was predetermined. It was predetermined by God. This was, plan, this was the plan actually before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of, of the world, before anything was made, the plan was to redeem a fallen creation, to put on display the glory of his grace and mercy and justice. To understand that, we actually go out of Luke 18 and to the end of the story. We go to the end of the story in Revelation 13. John has a vision. It's the vision of, of a beast that, that is obviously not God, but all of the world is worshiping this beast. And so of this beast, it says this in verse 8. It says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written, except for everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Let me explain that for a second. Again, he's writing about a vision, a vision of a beast that was worshipped. Worshipped by all except. Except who? Except those whose names are written in a book. When was this book written? Before the foundation of the world. What's the name of the book? The title of the book is The Life of the Lamb Who Has Been Slain. Before anything was made, it was in the mind of God to slay his sacrificial lamb for his own glory and for the sake of those written in that book. That every name written in that book might be saved. This was in the mind of God before he, before he said, let there be light. Before the beginning, before he made a single material thing, he said, I will Sacrifice my son for my elect. From there, to get an idea of what Jesus meant of written through the prophets about the Son of Man, we're going to take a trip through the Old Testament. A quick trip. I couldn't possibly exhaust this trip. But we started in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, God made the world perfect. He made the world perfect, and he made Adam, 
And to Adam, he gave dominion and authority over this creation as, as the man king who would serve as king over this dominion under the authority of God. And he told this man to cultivate, to establish, and to multiply. He makes a promise with this Adam. He makes a covenant with him that all of this was his to enjoy, except one tree. Of one tree you should not eat. And here's the promise. He says, or you will surely die. To disregard God's command and to disregard God's word and to unrighteously disbelieve in his promise of good for Adam, that deserves death. That's God's decree. And so Adam fell. He fell. He sinned. He, he went to the one tree and he was not, he not exercised his authority like he should and he, and he ate and he fell. He wanted a world without God as the authority. He wanted to be his own authority. And after man sinned and falls, what does he do? But he goes and he hides. Adam and Eve, they go and they hide. And he attempts to cover himself. He attempts to cover himself with figs and leaves. God looks at him and and Eve and deems this covering as insufficient. So what does he do? He makes another promise. He makes another promise. This promise is this, that death and pain and sorrow will come. All of creation will groan. All of creation will moan. And all of creation will be cursed and tainted by sin. There will be death. There will be pain. There will be sorrow. But there will be also hope. There will be hope for the seed of the woman, the one that would come, He would have his heel bruised, but ultimately in the bruising of his heel, he would crush the head of the serpent. And so we see God's plan beginning to unfold. And then God kills the first death. The first death happens and he he kills an animal and he takes the skins of those animals and he clothes them in his own sacrifice. Blood had to be shed. So rather than Adam and Eve shedding their own blood, God kills and clothes them in the animal skins. And it was a foreshadow of God's provision through a sacrificial death. Death belonged to them, but it went to the animal instead. And this sets the tone that blood sacrifice, it is necessary to make atonement for sin. To to appease God's justice, there must be blood sacrifice. And so coming back to Luke 18, Jesus says, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem to fulfill the scriptures, to fulfill prophecy. And so Genesis 3 is not even close to the only prophecy that concerns this. It's not not even close to the only thing that foreshadows God's plan from the beginning. In fact, I would argue that all of scripture is continuously pointing to Christ. All of Scripture, for all time, has been pointing to Jesus. All of redemptive history, from the beginning all the way to the cross, has been moving towards the cross, and everything in history from there to today has been moving from it. It is the pinnacle point. 
It has all been moving towards the lamb that would be slain. Here's what I mean. Let's move again later into, later into the story of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, we see Abraham and Isaac. Abraham is promised a son. He's promised a son in his old age. In fact, he's pretty old. Uh, in Romans, I believe Paul tells us that he was as good as dead. Like, that's how old he is. God promises him, son, him a son, and he, he believes God. And what happens is he brings him about Isaac, a son. And if the son comes a promise that through the seed of this son, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So God then tells Abraham to go and sacrifice this son. If you've never heard this story before, you might be thinking, that's weird. Why would he do that? It was a test. It was a test. He told him to go and sacrifice the one that God had promised to create a lineage and to bless the whole earth. The one son that he promised him, he said, now go and offer him up to me as a sacrifice. And Abraham obeys. Abraham trusts God. Fully dependent on God. Abraham obeys. Hebrews would tell us with a, another insight into this, into this story that he believed that God might raise him from the dead. But either way, he was dependent on God. And in fact, on the way up the mountain, Isaac asked Abraham. He's like, I, I see, see the wood. I see the knife. Where's the lamb, Dad? Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. God will provide the lamb. And so he takes Isaac up and he places him on the altar and he's ready to drive the knife into Isaac and the Lord stops him and says, because you have trusted me, you will be blessed forever and ever and ever. And Abraham opens it or lifts up his eyes and what does he see but a, a ram in a thorn bush. God provided in fact, Abraham named that mountain God, the Lord provides. Just as God had provided in Genesis 3, God now provides the lamb here in Genesis 22. Not long after that, we get to God's final plague in Egypt. All of Israel is held captive in Egypt. We get to the final plague where God is going to kill every firstborn child in all of Egypt. But he gives a promise. Another promise to trust. He says, he says that anyone who would take a spotless lamb, anyone who would take a spotless lamb and would sacrifice this lamb and would take the blood of the lamb and put it on your doorpost, my angel who I will come and send into Egypt to destroy all the firstborn child, that angel will pass over that door and you will be spared. The lamb would be the substitute. The lamb would be the substitute. The blood of the door would be the act of faith that demonstrated they were putting their trust in God's promise. And that faith would spare them. That faith would spare them and the lamb would be the substitute. And of course, then we move on to Moses and the law and the extensive sacrificial system that was put in place. God would tabernacle with his people but the only way to have fellowship with him was through a consistent, constant massacring of sacrifice all the time. 
That was the job of the priest, was to continuously lay sacrifices before God, day in and day out. Again, the lesson is that only by sacrifice, only by, only by sacrifice would God spare the life of his people and have fellowship with them. Tabernacle with them. Sounds exhausting. Lest we forget that God is just. His bar is high. And he demands perfection. And where there is staunch sin, which there always has been, he demands justice. There must be death. There must be death. But yet God continues to give hope. He continues to give hope through the prophets. Through the prophets that would come. And they enter into the land. They enter into the land and he gives prophet after prophet and prophecy after prophecy that would point to the, to the end of all sacrifices. He would point to the sacrifice of all sacrifices that would put the end to the constant bloodshed. There would be one who would end all sacrifices by the shedding of blood. There would be one who would put an end to all of the, of the bloody sacrifices and be the sacrifice of once and for all for all people. There's so many of these prophecies. Again, I couldn't exhaust them all, but if you have your handout, there's a reference on the back of the handout to a lot of these. Psalm 22. It's a psalm. It's a prophetic psalm about the one who is to come. In just a few verses from it, it says that a band of evildoers encompass me. It says they pierced my hands and my feet. Piercing was not a form of execution Back in Jews' times, it was, it was all about stoning. This would not have been a concept of death back when this psalm was written. This is completely future. So they pierced my hands and feet. I, count all, I can count all my bones. Jesus, when he was on the cross, they broke the legs of everyone on the cross to speed up the suffering, but Jesus' legs were never broken. So I can count all my bones they look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and they cast lots for my clothing. All of this happened at the foot of the cross. Ages before this ever happened. Ages before this ever took place. Prophets were speaking of the one who and to come and how he would suffer. Isaiah 50 says this. Isaiah 50, again, about maybe 700 years before Christ, he says, he gave his back to those who strike him and my cheek to those who pluck out my beard. I did not cover my face from spitting or humiliation, but he just received it. He just received it. Isaiah 53 continues, speaking of the suffering servant again, the one who would come and suffer. It says he was pierced for our transgressions, and by his scourging, Jesus says we'll be scourged. He says by his scourging, we will be healed. Isaiah 53 continues to say that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Again, it's not an accident. It was, it was the pleasure of God to crush him. To crush and sacrifice this lamb that was to be slain before the foundation of the world. Why? Why? Because Isaiah 53.11 tells us the result of this crushing is that the Lord will see and finally be satisfied. His wrath will be satisfied. Quenched. No more judgment, no more wrath because of this. But who's it for? It says, for this servant by dying will justify 
and or make righteous the many, for he will bear their wrongdoings. For anyone who would put their trust in him, he will bear their sin. Satisfy God's wrath is reserved for you. He will bear it on himself and take your place. I could keep going. I keep going. There's passages in Ezekiel. There's passages in Daniel. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Luke 18. Prophecy after prophecy speaking not only of the suffering Messiah, but the way he would suffer and even the exact time of his suffering. Daniel 9 speaks of, a, of the one to come who would be cut off. Who would be cut off. And, the, and he, he nails it down to the, to, the, to the year of when he would be cut off. Hundreds of years before Christ would ever enter the scene. And so finally we get to the, the final Old Testament prophet. We get to John the Baptist. And upon looking at Jesus' face, he says, Nothing but, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We see God's plan coming to fruition as the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world enters into time and space and takes on flesh to do what he was always intending to do. To rescue. To rescue. All of history has been leading up to this point. All of history has been leading up to this point. As Paul says in Galatians 4, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born under the law so that he might fulfill the law and redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came, to fulfill the mission that began before the world was made. He came to redeem. He came to seek and to save. He came to do the will of the Father. Namely, Jesus came to die. To be the provided lamb. To be the Passover lamb. In fact, as they entered into Jerusalem, that was the celebration they were entering into. They were entering into Passover. Where he would be the lamb. He came to be the lamb that he would save his elect. And... And that he would take dominion. And that he would take dominion of his kingdom forever and ever and ever. See, at the cross, Jesus purchased every name written in that book. At the cross, Jesus purchased every name written in that book. This is what was accomplished, the redemption of his people. Meaning all of the people who would be in his kingdom. I believe this is why he's referring to the, the phrase that would happen to the Son of Man. This is how they would have understood that phrase as the one who was given dominion and rule over the entire universe. And people from many tribes and tongues and nations would serve him. Daniel 7 speaks of a man, a divine being that actually is like a son of man. And this son of man does what no other man could ever possibly do. He approaches the ancient of days. No one could do that without collapsing in death right away. This man, this one like the son of man, he approaches the ancients of days and he not only approaches him, but he's been given 
He sits down at the right hand of the Ancient of Days and he's, and he's been given an authority and a kingdom and a rule that will never, ever, ever, ever end. He purchased that on the cross. He accomplished it on the cross. Fulfillment of this prophecy was to be accomplished. But first, there must be payment for sin. He's saying, fellas, we're going to go to Jerusalem. All right, hear me, hear me. We're going we're to go to Jerusalem, and the work that God began from before the foundation of the world, we're going to go and finish it. We're going to go accomplish it. And this is what he said on the cross, nothing other but it is finished. He did it. He did it. Again, this was no accident. Jesus' death was not the work of Romans to save the republic. It was not the work of the Sanhedrin to save their religion. This was the work of God from the very beginning, orchestrating all of history, working in the hearts of kings, working in the hearts of men, Every single minute, every single second of every single day for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, orchestrating it all just to get to this very point. God is sovereign. And he does what he says he will do. Jesus says, we're going to go finish it. But Jesus didn't just die. This wasn't as though he said, I'm just going to go and get shot in the head. Quick and easy. No, he suffered. He suffered immensely. Back when I had uh, recently been uh, converted or got saved, I was, I was living in California and I moved back to Georgia. And I remember I was just sitting in my apartment and I had a friend call me, his old friend, and he called me and said, hey man, let's, let's go out. Let's go party. It was a friend I used to party with a lot. Uh, and, and I said, you know, man, I don't really do that anymore. You know, I, I serve Jesus now. Uh, I don't really do that, but hey, go have fun. And he's like, no, man, come on, seriously. Like, like, what are you doing? Let's go to the club. Let's go party. Let's go hang out. I'm like, no, seriously, dude, I, I'm not going. I don't, I don't want to go. That's not who I am anymore. I serve Jesus now. To which he began to mock Jesus. Now, I don't remember everything he said, but I remember my heart started racing. I remember my heart started to pound because he, he was making fun of Jesus. And I said to him, I said, buddy, I, I'm going to hang up now because I'm, I'm really mad. You're talking about my king. You're talking about my king, and I'm going to hang up now before I say something that I'm going to regret. And I hung up. I tell you this story because I was young in my conversion, but the work of the cross was so fresh in my mind. The redemption I felt was so fresh. The love of my king and what he went through for me was so new, tangible. Who Jesus was, all that he did to redeem me, 
all the wretchedness of sin that I'd committed, he set me free from, he paid for it all, and it was so new and fresh to me that when my friends started talking about Jesus this way, it just started to enrage me. Because he was talking about my king who did that for me. And yet today, I don't know if I would get as angry if I was back then. I don't know if it's because of maturity or maybe, maybe it's numbness. Maybe it's numbness to the suffering my God eagerly entered into for me. It's just old news. I hope that's not the case for you. I pray that passages like this would spark and, re- and invigorate that person that was just saved, whether it was one year or 30 years ago, that would invigorate that person again. He describes the suffering. He says it will be handed over to the Gentiles. This word for handed over, is it means betrayed. The Son of Man, he was betrayed by one of his very closest friends. Yeah, he knew it would happen. He chose him. But yet, one of his very closest friends would betray him. Have you ever been betrayed? Has anyone close to you just completely turned their back on you? Unfriended you? And I'm talking Facebook. I'm talking like just completely abandoned you. How does that feel? Chances are, because we're human, we might have deserved at least 1% of it. Jesus deserved none of it. Completely betrayed. It says he will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. The one who is holy. One who is holy and worthy of all honor and praise. Who has never ever sinned in thought, word, or deed. He deserves only worship. Received the most ridiculous amount of humiliation anyone has ever experienced. And he received it. And did not say a word. He entered willingly into scorn and embarrassment. In fact, every mouth that yelled crucify him, every voice box that would scream insults at him, every amount of saliva that was hurled at him, he made it. He created it. These people who claimed to love him just a week prior would show absolute disgust and grotesque hate for him. Have you ever been falsely accused? I know how angry I get when I feel like somebody is falsely accusing me. And again, more times than not, there's probably a hint of truth. But not for him. Not for him. It says in verse 33, after they have scourged him. The scourging is a is a type of beating that leaves somebody completely mutilated. Completely mutilated. These whips, they would have metal hooks attached at the end of them. They would have shards of glass attached to them. And when you would whip somebody with these whips, it would 
latch onto their back, and then pull skin and muscle away from the bone. Jesus, willingly, was whipped 39 times. 39 times. With each and every strike, the back of Jesus was being turned into mincemeat, and his muscles would be torn. Isaiah 52 would prophesy that Jesus was beaten so badly that it says he would be unrecognizable as a person. These movies you've watched about the passion of Christ don't do it anywhere close to the justice of the beating and suffering your Messiah went through for you. Unrecognizable as a human being. He says they will kill him. Jesus knew his fate. He would go through one of the most excruciating deaths that anyone could go through. His hands and his feet would be driven through with nails. His bare and mutilated back would be pressed up against a splintery cross. His arms would be stretched out like this and up to where you can't breathe. And the only way to push yourself up is on your pierced hands and feet and your back rubbing up against that cross. It's death by suffocation. It's death by suffocation. And yet, I want you to hear me when I say this. Jesus feared none of it. His face, as we see from this text, is like a flint towards Jerusalem. He's unwavering and determined to go and complete the mission. He did not fear the beatings. He did not fear the nails. He did not fear the cross. He feared the wrath of God. He feared the cup. The cup of wrath that he would drink down. The greatest rejection that he would experience is the rejection of his father that he's known for an eternity. In perfect fellowship, his father would turn his back on his son and Jesus again to fulfill prophecy would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would be the one forsaken by the Father instead of you, instead of me. He would take the wrath, the cup of wrath reserved for you, and he would drink it down. And he would not leave one single drop. And yet not without hope, because he knew he would rise again. He knew he would rise again. The joy that was set before him, he endured the suffering. He despised the shame. The question I have is, is, is what impact, what is the impact of all of this for you? Is this a, a neat story? A unique part of history? As you read this passage, you might say, man, I, I believe this is true. I get it. I've read the books. I've heard the story. I, I mentally understand that Jesus was God. He came. He suffered. He died for me. I get it. But what impact does it have in your life? Is it just a story? Or is it something that you receive in your heart and it makes a change in you? I mean, we should, may we remember 
This is my prayer for me too. May we remember just how costly our salvation was. Like I said, in my early Christian life, it it was so fresh to me. Is it still fresh to you? Or has it become dull? Has the great and glorious plan of God from the very beginning, the plan from before the world began, working throughout all of history to bring about your redemption, has it become old news or is it still good news? He willingly and without hesitation ran into Jerusalem He shed his innocent blood and spotless blood so that the righteous wrath of God would be fully satisfied for us. The impossible salvation of man would be made possible. To purchase you out of bondage, to purchase you out of slavery, of sin, and to show you an immeasurable amount of mercy. Why? So that you might be redeemed. And as his redeemed, give praise and honor and glory to God. Now and forever. So how will we respond? How will we respond? Church, will we let this good news just go in one ear and out the other? Or will we receive it? again and again and again like a fountain burning up that always satisfies? Will we let it just pass over us or will we plead today, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation? And then in that joy, when God answers that prayer, which if you ask with a sincere heart, he will bear that fruit in you. In that joy, go and continue the work of redemption. Continue the work of redemption. That's the amazing part. This is what gets me kind of really excited sometimes, is that God's not finished. The redemption story is continuing. It is continuing with the church. It continues with you, meaning that you and I, we are a massive part of God's redemptive plan. Listen, there there are more and more and more and more people out there who are written in that book, and they don't know it. They don't know it. They, They don't know that they have a mercy waiting for them. They're they're waiting to hear the gospel presentation from Christ's church. They don't know the joy of the gospel. They don't understand the fellowship of they can have with their God, not yet. But will we be like Jesus and pursue the mission with strict determination? The way to self-denial is not focusing on self-denial. The way to self-denial is to Jesus. You pursue him. You pursue the calling he has placed on your life. And I promise you, you will shed things like crazy. You will shed the world like crazy. You will shed all kinds of things that weigh you down from running the race. You will because you care about the finish line. 
When I think of all that God has done from the beginning to the cross and from the cross to today, and that I get to be a part of that, it makes me want to jump to the roof sometimes. CBC, we are either an active part of this redemption story or we're being disobedient. A wasted life. A wasted life. Or an unwasted life. That's the choice. There is no middle ground, but there is great and awesome joy. There is joy promised both now and in eternity for those that live the unwasted life of preaching Christ crucified. You don't have to be clever. You just have to go and preach Christ crucified and risen. So let's do it, church. Let's do it. Take every opportunity today. Take every opportunity this week to live as one who has been changed and affected and impacted by this glorious gospel. Let's pray.